You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. To my successor, whoever he or she may be. Number one, stay close to the Americans, stick up for the Ukrainians, stick up for freedom and democracy everywhere. Politics in general has taken total leave of its senses. Changing one man at the top of the Tory party won't make any difference. It won't fix the problems. Let's have a fresh start for Britain. Let's have a real change of government. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics, your daily guide to the corridors of power. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Coming up on today's programme, as UK economy contracts, Bloomberg's David Goodman on what today's GDP figures tell us about the coming winter. And no fewer than nine rail companies go on strike this weekend. The next wave of labour unrest will get a conservative take on how to get Britain back to work from the Institute for Economic Affairs. Well, uh, happy Friday, Lizzie, and also to Bloomberg's David Goodman, who's with us in the studio. Now, Lizzie, there is some evidence uh, with those uh, GDP figures today that services spending on some fun things helped to cushion the slowdown in June GDP. Now, would it be a bit harsh for me to say that you weren't out boozing for the Queen's Jubilee weekend. Uh, I feel like you're teasing me for being teetotal. But actually, Ewan, I would argue that my lack of a hangover on the Tuesday perhaps promoted economic growth. Don't know about you. Well, only if you went out and spent some money on stuff. Uh, well, yes, my contribution to the uh, economy was pretty poor over the Queen's Bank Holiday weekend because I was in the office because TV, the world of TV continues. TV news rolls on to both bank holidays. I was here, so I think my spending was... Very limited indeed. What about you, Dave? I've got a toddler, so I haven't been out of the house throughout 18 months, to be honest with you. <laughs> Dave has no life. So, <laughs> so you're not helping with the economic recovery whatsoever. No. Um, David, now just to talk us through come the, uh, the, the top line uh, figures from the GDP data today. Sure. Well, I think the, the main line is that the economy contracted in, in the second quarter. Um, it, it contracted by just... 0.1%, so not a big drop, but it's obviously any time the economy contracts, that's not that's not great news, and it's pretty much in line with what the BOE and other people were looking for. In in June, we saw a slightly bigger drop of 0.6%, but there's some, as you say, there's some factors around the Jubilee that make that slightly more difficult to interpret. Okay, we're going to come back to GDP, but earlier today, our other Bloomberg UK politics host Stephen Carroll and Bloomberg's Alex Webb, Webb sat down with economist Diane Coyle, who's Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University. They asked her what she made of the figures. Health warning is that you should never take the first quarterly figure too seriously because they do get revised and it's a, it's a small decline. But the bigger picture here is that the economy is clearly slowing down. Part of the contraction in, that we saw in this quarter was um, health activities related to the pandemic stopping. But the other part was consumers being much more careful about their spending. 
And that's not really surprising when you think about the news about uh, what's happening to energy bills over the next uh, year or so. A food price has gone up for those people on variable rate mortgages, mortgages starting to go up. And so the discretionary spending that people can do is, is shrinking. And, and that's that's going to get worse over the autumn. Given the decline, does that mean that almost automatically the third quarter is likely to be better? Uh, no, I don't think there's any automatic here. And um, the, there was a, a dip in June related to the bank holiday. And so you would get some bounce back from that in, in July. Um, but I, I think it's a, a pretty bleak outlook for the UK economy at the moment. We are doing worse than most other international comparators. Uh, Brexit is still hitting trade. So we've got a weak export sector. And the uh, impact on households is going to be really severe. You mentioned the forecast of a £5,000 a year energy um, bill and the median income, household income in this country is £31,000. That means that half of households have less than £31,000 a year. And when you think about the chunk that's going to get taken out of that by things that people have to spend on, their heating, their cooking, lighting, food, housing, that doesn't leave much money for spending on other things. So I think um, we're very likely to see further contractions. Tell us what you think the next important data point will be to watch when it comes to the UK economy. We have been seeing retail sales figures holding up, but that's due to inflation. Volumes uh, from the latest BRC figures were down, but the overall headline figure was up. What what are you watching out for next as the next key indicator? I suppose the canary in the cage will be those discretionary elements of spending. And they have held up so far. Things like like going out um, to uh, events or um, dining out, and partly, of course, people were, have been glad to get back out in the nice weather because of the Jubilee celebrations, because of the uh, scaling back of the pandemic. And once um, the, uh, the things that people have to pay for start biting, those increases start biting and everyone cuts back on discretionary spend, that will be one of the early warnings, I think, about an impending recession. Well, that was Diana Coyle, Bennett Professor of Public Policy at Cambridge University, speaking to us just a little bit earlier today. So, Dave, what did you make of what Diane said? We also had Callum Pickering from Berenberg on Bloomberg TV and radio earlier today. And he's very different to Diane in terms of his views on how much Brexit contributes to the UK's economic performance now. You heard what Diane says. What do you reckon? I think, obviously, the main thing that jumps out is that what's ahead is worse than what we've seen recently and and that's certainly what's going to happen this winter with energy bills going up um and and that kind of thing i think in in terms of um brexit itself i don't think you can we're at a point where we can be like every quarter is this to do with brexit is this not to do with brexit brexit is always there and it's always probably just like slightly reducing the uk's growth potential i think that's what we're seeing it's this kind of long-term kind of puncture really rather than anything massive David, where does this leave the Bank of England? I mean, these, these weren't kind of uh, sh- shockingly uh, fascinating GDP figures, were they? So presumably it doesn't move the dial uh, particularly. But just sort of talk us through what, what the, the, the expectations are for, for, for rate rises over the course of this year. Yeah, I think, as I said earlier, I think they're pretty much in line with what the BOE were, were thinking. I mean, 0.1% here or there isn't, isn't a big difference. Um, I think the market seem to think we're heading for another 50 basis point hike in, in September what we saw policymakers say in August, although they were saying everything's on the table and we're not we're not kind of pre-committing, obviously, I don't think anyone was really pushing back against the prospect of that. And given that we're going to get an inflation read next week, that the, um, the moment is forecast for 9.8%, but 
as we know, people have massively underestimated inflation almost at every turn this year. So if we have double-digit inflation reported for July, then yeah, 50 basis points very much seems to be the kind of central case for September. Yeah, I keep asking economists, why don't they just change their models after you've got it wrong six, is it seven times now? Maybe they are. Maybe they are changing the models and they're still getting it wrong. I think yeah, that's, a, but, that's a scary thing. Yeah, but economists getting things wrong, I mean, that's just part of the profession, isn't it? I mean, it's, <laughs> it, if economists got everything right, it, it wouldn't be economics. So speaking about getting things right, lots of commentators have said that the Bank of England's forecasts of this five quarter long recession are too gloomy because, of course, they can't take account of unconfirmed fiscal policy. But Dave, given that it's likely we're going to get a trust premiership, given we know that she wants to make £40 billion of tax cuts, is a recession still inevitable she says it's not um well i think it's even the boe's forecast even more gloomy than that it's seven quarters without growth five quarters of, of kind of proper contraction then two with without growth so i mean these are really far more gloom than anyone else is looking at and that's partly because the boe are factoring in a far bigger increase in energy prices than other people are at, at this point um in terms of whether the one's inevitable i mean it looks like no matter how much you do around tax cuts, you're still going to end up with a recession. I think we had some research in Bloomberg Economics out earlier this week showing exactly that. And yeah, there's only so much you can do because tax cuts take a while to kick in and they take a while for that money to come back to you. So in in the short term, it's all about whether there's any more kind of direct fiscal help for, for households. And, and in terms of the BOE getting it wrong, I mean, they kind of have to just take take things as read at the moment. They can't be in the business of predicting fiscal policy, given how, I mean, what we've seen feels like we've seen about 10 budgets this year. I'm sure that's not the real number, but it changes so quickly. <laughs> feels that way to an eco-reporter. Exactly, hey? yeah. <laughs> so you can't really kind of, they can't really factor in all these changes that might be coming in. D- David, I hesitate to ask you a question which has a, a which touches, touches on Brexit as well, but um, how important is the hot labour market to the UK? It does feel that it's something that's slightly different in the UK to the rest of Europe. And I guess it's, it's both a positive and a negative in as far as, uh, the fact that everybody's got a job and wages are rising should be good for GDP, but also it's a problem for inflation, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's right. I think the the UK kind of has, people have talked about having the worst of both worlds for inflation. You've kind of got the hot labour market of the US and you've got the kind of energy price shock and other things from, from Europe. So yeah, it's from an inflation point of view, it's not great. I mean, I think there may be some signs of slowing in next week's jobs data that may kind of show that some of that tightness is, is starting to give away. And certainly as we see growth start to, to drop off and if we do get this kind of five quarters of, of a recession then the expectations are that we will see a kind of pretty big jump in unemployment on the back of that so yeah i mean we may have already passed the peak for the kind of tightness of the market I think. you've got a story on the terminal about the potential impact of liz trust the front runner to be the next pm's plans uh, in terms of reviewing the bank of england's mandate potentially driving investors away from sterling and gilts but what i wonder coming back to brexit is is it how the next leader handles brexit that's more worrying than the questions of the boe or fiscal policy I think in the short term, obviously, what they do around fiscal policy is the most important thing. And for households, for, for you and me, for, for people we know... No, I'm going to be all right. I've got a wood-burning stove. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> but like how, how that all plays out is, is the most important near-term factor, I think. And that's going to determine how deep a recession we see. I think, obviously, the approach to Brexit, again, is a longer-term issue. And how that kind of plays out is, is more of a kind of where you, the UK growth kind of goes over the next 10 years. And that may be what investors look at i guess after the turn of the year but at the moment i think the fiscal policy is is the real kind of big sorry and the mandate becomes an issue when it becomes an issue i think for investors people are worried about it and worried about it changing but 
they're not really pricing anything massively in for it yet. I think if we do get a substantial change, that's when we might start to see some big market reaction. But, you know, if she goes the whole hog, if Liz Truss goes for blowing up the Brexit deal and we get a trade war in retaliation from the EU, that's only going to add to the cost of living crisis. So I really wonder, you know, how the next leader, given they're both professing to be hardcore Brexiters, can find a way out of this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, obviously, you have to just look at the politics of it and if you're fighting the Tory leadership race, you kind of have, everyone has to be kind of the most extreme position possible. So, yeah, I mean, what they say in the race and what they do in government is probably... Campaign in poetry, governing poetry. Something like that, yeah. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success.
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Boris Johnson met the bosses of energy companies yesterday, but no new plans were revealed to try to help households or businesses with soaring costs. Now, the energy consultancy Auxilian says that the average household bill will surge past £5,000 in 2023. The next jump will come in October when the energy price goes cap goes up. Stephen Carroll and Tom McKenzie have been speaking to Auxilion's director, Tony Jordan, about whether the cap system needs to be changed. Is it fit for purpose, I think, is a, is a question that's that's coming up. And if we think back to a year ago, how many people had heard of the price cap? Uh, whereas today, everybody knows what it is. Everybody's watching it very closely, and rightly so. Um, so I think the design of the price cap itself is coming under question. Um, it, it's difficult to know what to do next because the design is the design that we have to live with today. There's not a lot that the government, Ofgem, or indeed energy companies can actually do to change uh, where, you know, where we're going to see the Tony, next couple of caps. Tony, we could, we, the government could subsidise. I mean, we pay far more per kilowatt hour than the Europeans do. And that's because European governments are subsidising uh, at a heftier pace. We, the British government could do more. What would it cost? Uh, probably vast sums of money. So the price cap at the moment is so the one that's in place today uh, that came in in April about 54% of it is made up of the wholesale cost, with the other 46% being other costs. So the networks, the operating costs, the VAT, etc. That's going to move to around 70% of wholesale costs in the upcoming cap. So 30% of the other items. In January, we forecast that as high as 90% wholesale costs. Um, so there's there's less movement around the, the tangible things that they can move. So there's talks around removing or reducing green levies and VAT. The reality is those items in isolation will only take out a small percentage of the cap. Um, if you try and hold a potential cap going to somewhere around, you know, three and a half, four thousand pounds in the coming months to the level that it's at today, around two thousand pounds, with 20 million households, it's going to be tens of billions uh, that, w- that we need to fund uh, that kind of subsidy. When we look at the, the those sort of structural changes to the energy market, though, is is it something that's worthwhile in the in the short term to look at? 
taking more drastic action to try and combat because £5,000 for the median income in the UK is absolutely huge. It is indeed. I think I think there's a lot of questions that have to be asked around what should the structure of our uh, you know, energy markets be, particularly in relation to the price cap and what it's designed to do. Um, I think you know, yesterday's meeting with the government and the energy companies as we probably expected, it resulted in no particular outcome simply because I think they don't really know what they can do as as, as energy companies. There's not a lot they can do. Uh, they're following the rules that's been laid out by Ofgem. Um, it really comes down to the government to to put their hands in their pocket and, and subsidise in some way. Uh, but as I say, the, the numbers that we're potentially looking at are vast. So we have to look at how much are we going to borrow um, in order to um, you know, to put that in place. That was Tony Jordan, director of the energy consultancy Auxilione. Now, from nurses to barristers, dockers to posties, workers across Britain's industries and professions are ramping up plans for strike action this autumn. The prospect of a so-called summer of discontent, a nod to the 1978's winter of discontent, has loomed since UK inflation rose sharply earlier this year. Four days of public transport strikes will test the patience of commuters starting this weekend ahead of three consecutive days of disruption from next Thursday. Well, let's get a view now from think the think tank, the Institute for Economic Affairs. Matthew Lesh, the IEA's head of public policy, joins us now. Matthew... The Bank of England sees inflation hitting not just double digits, but above 13% in the autumn. Surely that means the unions now have more chance of securing bigger pay rises. Mm, I mean, I think the inflation figures are frightening for us all. In many senses, we do have a perfect storm for industrial disputes. Not only the kind of frustrations that were built up over lockdown, as well as pay restraint over the last decade, these large inflationary pressures are leading to quite big demands from the unions. But I think we need to be a little bit careful not to directly compare this to the winter of discontent. This is quite a different situation for a number of reasons. I mean, to start with, just that the proportion of the workforce who are union members is significantly declined from about half of the working population in 1979 to around 23% today. And if you look at the amount of working days lost to strikes in 2018, it was to make 273,000 compared to over 29 million in 1979. So the the kind of power and and influence the union is substantially declined. Um, Where we're seeing these strikes is largely on the old old industrialised, unionised sectors, largely in the public sector or in the the privatised public utilities like the railways or Rail mail. So I don't think we can expect the kind of broad scale strikes of the 1970s, but there will be disruptions, particularly in the railways over the coming weeks and months. Mm, interesting figures. Nonetheless, nonetheless, strikes are certainly on the up. I think that's more than, than anecdotal, isn't it? Does Britain have a, have a strike problem or is the current unrest just to be expected given the inflation figures which, which Lizzie, Lizzie mentioned? Mm, I mean, it, it's hard It's hard to say what, what the definition of a strike problem would be. I think every strike is a problem for those people who are impacted, who might be wanting to commute on those particular days, or if, if the um, Royal Mail is on strike, those who don't get their letters and, and packages delivered. Uh, and, and therefore, that, that is problematic for, for those, a lot of people. I, again, I don't think we're seeing the kind of um, mass strike kind of response. I think there are some changes the government could do that would potentially reduce the... the um, impact of strikes. There's been a lot of discussion, for example, about introducing minimum service agreements. This is quite um, commonplace in continental Europe that says when these 
organisations do go on strike, there's still an expectation that 20 or 30 percent uh, of the service has to continue to be delivered for for public safety and uh, and, and and public needs. So there, there are steps that something could be taken to minimise impact strikes, but to some extent, this is this is the the reality of the politics of inflation. Uh, which is that when you have inflation, it does lead to more political instability, more anger and and industrial strife. So the Centre for Economics and Business Research estimated that it would cost £100 million, the June strikes in transport alone. Does the Institute for Economic Affairs have a figure for how much all these strikes across the summer are likely to cost the economy? Look, unfortunately, we don't have any particular figures that, that we've calculated. I mean, I mean, it really ultimately depends on on the, the kind of length and nature of, of some of these strikes. I think they're they're going to quickly have big, big big impacts on some of the businesses. For example, a company like Royal Mail that's now largely in the business of package delivery, uh, they're going to potentially lose a lot of business to to other um, companies who who don't have people going on strike, who don't have unionised workforces. So you, I think you, we're going to end up seeing in, the, in those kind of sectors a lot of um, change in behaviour. Um, I think in the railways, the, the big issue, underlying issue of the railways is the fact that post-COVID, the, the number of commuters is significantly decreased. That means a lot less ticket revenue and it means the current um, level of service is not uh, financially sustainable without large government subsidies. Um, in that context, it's, it's very hard for, to promise big pay rises that are being demanded by the unions. So you've got that, that underlying structural issue. A bit of a longer-term danger is if they keep going on strike, it's very unlikely that people are going to start returning to using the railways in the way they have previously because of the lack of certainty behind the service. So that, that could be an even longer-term cost to the railways and, and ultimately to the government who, who might be um, forced to, to subsidise them to, to keep them running. Matthew, do you think that some other European countries manage industrial relations better? G- Germany, for instance, where workers are often... Well, represent, re- well represented on company boards. Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly different union cultures. Britain famously has a relatively aggressive um, the workers versus the bosses culture, at least historically. I mean, I, I think I would like to see um, a better culture around working towards um, productivity and, and workplace improvements in exchange for pay rises, particularly in the public sector, that could be beneficial um, to the workers directly through high wages, but also to the users of services. Uh, Germany's got a, a very different historical culture when it comes to um, the place of union. I mean, that can work. That can be good in certain cases. Um, during the financial crisis, famously, the unions agreed to uh, reduce salaries for all workers instead of some workers losing their jobs. But it can also at times mean a lot less flexibility um, and, and a lot less um, competition when you have conspiring between the unions and uh, and, and the bosses of companies. It doesn't necessarily um, end up in, in the broader benefit of the economy or, or innovation and, um, and progress in that respect. And just briefly, in our last minute here, the Thatcher and major governments tightened the laws around strikes. Now, in 2022, do you think we have a good balance? I think there's, there's an argument for, for rejigging the laws in certain respects. I mean, it's worth noting that the trade unions are have certain protections. If they follow the, the rules, generally speaking, they can basically strike without the, the repercussion of losing your job that you would normally happen if you, if you didn't show up for work. Um, and, and there's some proposals that, to change, for example, the, the turnout required for those ballots uh, to increase percentages or change the, the nature of the bargaining unit. So I think some of those reforms could be beneficial uh, to ensure that if strikes do happen, that they have a, a strong level of support. Um, from the workers, that it doesn't become a default behaviour to go on strike uh, and, and make other people's lives miserable.
Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.